another episode of NeuroTalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar, brought to you by Neurite West. I'm Ada Yee, a neuroscience graduate student here at Stanford. And I'm Louise Young, a postdoctoral fellow at Stanford. Today our guest is Nirao Shah, professor in the Department of Anatomy at UCSF. We'll be speaking with him about neuropest stem cells, circuits underlying sexual dimorphism, and his first exposure to research in India. All this and more coming up. We're here with Dr. Nero Shao, professor in the Department of Anatomy at UCSF. Uh, thank you so much for speaking with us today, Professor Shao. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on your show. Can you tell us a little bit about your background, where you grew up, and whether you were interested in science or biology as a kid? Sure. Um, I grew up um, in Bombay, and uh, that's where I went to medical school. And in answer to your question, about was I interested in science as a kid. I was interested generally in science and math as a kid. And that's what I sort of did well in school at. And uh, at some point I had to decide, was I gonna go into engineering or medical school? And I essentially decided I would go to medical school. I don't think in retrospect that I had any perfectly reasonable reasons or rational reasons for going into one or the other. At, at that point, it was just a toss-up. I'd gotten into the schools I wanted for engineering and medical school. And I said, you know what? I just talked to my uncle. He's an MD, so I'm going to try becoming a doctor. Mm-hmm. But at that point, I didn't have any research experience, which, as you will sort of, as we've talked, will become clear why I'm doing now what I'm doing. So as you said, you actually trained as a doctor in India. I think you also did your residency there. and. So I'm just wondering how you actually uh, liked that experience there. So I'm wondering, like, maybe you interact with some medical students here in the in the States. Was it very different to go to school in India? And did you like it? Yeah, so I think there are multiple questions there. So let me just first clarify. I did not do a full residency there. I did a year of internship um, and got licensed and decided I w- that I wanted to go to grad school after that. Uh, so that was the end of my sort of clinical training. Um, and why did you why did you make that decision? Right. So, and that sort of also relates to your question as to how how I sort of think medical education is here in, in this country now because I do teach uh, you know the professional students here. So, uh, very quickly, as soon as the clinical stuff began in my medical training back in Bombay, I realized that my heart really lay, my interests really lay in sort of you know the basic sciences I'd just done in the first 18-20 months of medical school. So biochemistry, pharmacology, physiology, anatomy, that's really where my interests lay. Sort of the mechanisms of, you know, how it is that we remain healthy or what happens in disease. The pathophysiology and the basic physiology of human beings was what really interested me. Mm-hmm. So the clinical stuff, it was very clear to me from very early on, was not going to hold my interest for long enough. And I was fortunate to have a wonderful clinical mentor who would round late evenings when he was on call. And he would sort of, he realized where my interest lay and would sort of ask questions not necessarily related about how to cure patients, but, you know, what lay behind the disease process. And that got me hooked. And then during my year of internship, he suggested that I explore the research options a little bit further and suggested a couple of places I should be looking at. So I followed up on his suggestions, and that turned out to be completely transformative. Mm-hmm. I was completely hooked. One of the places I worked at while doing my clinical internship is the Tata Institute of Fundamental Research, also in Bombay. Mm-hmm. 
So I do my clinical duties and then at the end of the day or when I had off days, um, I would sort of go off to the TIFR and work on a sort of fly neurobiology lab. And that was really good. And once again, it was extremely fortuitous, right? I just went in there blind into the TIFR and I just happened to walk into the lab of an extremely sort of famous, illustrious, old world neurobiologist. What do you mean old world? Very courtly, sort of very, a, a scientist scientist, right? He's just like to think and sort of ask questions at a high level and, you know, sort of almost was very interested in the philosophy of science almost. And that was great. Uh, he was very smart. He was clearly very accomplished, but he just liked talking about science, you know, to young kids like myself, very impressionable. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, if you really want to pursue science seriously, because there is very little formal laboratory training, research experiences in India that you get pre-medical school mm -hmm. or pre-engineering, you should, you know, get a PhD preferably the U.S. or Europe. So I took the GREs and I applied to grad school. Mm -hmm. And he had done his postdoctoral training with Seymour Benzer at Caltech. Oh, right. And he loved his experience there. Mm -hmm. And he said, you, may, you can apply wherever you want, but you have to apply to Caltech and see if you can get in because that will be wonderful. I sort of listened to him, got letters from him, and applied to you know, multiple schools and Caltech as well. Uh, and one of the biggest draws to me, practically speaking, was the application to Caltech was free. <laughs> really? Which is, yeah, which is coming from <laughs> India, right? Because, yeah. you know, I'm not making very much money as an intern. I was making, I don't know, probably $30 a month as an intern. Right. And most application fees are $30 per school. Uh -huh. And Caltech was free. I said, yeah, this is great. <laughs> so I applied and I got in without uh -huh. an interview. Uh -huh. um, and then that's where I went. Now, compared to the medical students here in relation to your question about what I what do I think about the, graduate, the medical education here? Uh, I think it's very different. It's a little more structured, and which is good because there's so much more to learn these days yeah. in terms of you know integrating molecular biology and genetics and all these sort of GWA studies and all the cutting edge sort of imaging technology that's coming around into medical school. That it is great that the education is structured, and I think the students who come in are unbelievably sort of far more knowledgeable and. Um, motivated to get to where they want to be than I was when I was in medical school. But clinically, the experience in India was simply spectacular. I think I've seen so many interesting cases, even in the right. three years or so that I was in clinics, right. that many physicians here would perhaps see over the course of their lifetime. You can basically see them a few years. And that's because I was at a major tertiary referral hospital mm -hmm. in India for my clinical training. So getting back to your timeline, so you got into Caltech. I guess, how did you choose to work in the lab of David Anderson? and Why or how did that decision come about? Um, so I only had some neurobiology experience working with Obeid Siddiqui at TIFR. And I think if I had stuck it out in medical school and become, you know, like a real doctor, uh, a practicing one, I mean, I would have eventually specialized either neurosurgery or more likely neurology, because that was always fun to me. Um, so those were my two sort of hot favorites, if you will, sort of going into Caltech in terms of picking rotation projects and labs. And then I did my first rotation with Paul Patterson uh, at Caltech, and then I was totally hooked. I never looked back. Uh, I said, this is really what I want to be doing, working with neurons and glia and sort of, at least in grad school at the time, sort of figuring out how it is that they differentiate. Mm -hmm. 
so my next rotation was with David, and I really liked being in the lab in terms of the atmosphere, the fact that he was extremely hands-on at the time. Uh, he sort of, we co-designed experiments for my rotation project. He did the initial series of experiments, and I sort of took over what he had started over the summer. So the first rotation you did was stem cells, and David Anderson was also actually, I mean, uh, maybe some younger students might not realize this, but um, at the time also working on stem cells, is that right? Right. So with Paul Patterson, I was working, uh, so Paul Patterson just passed away uh, maybe a year or so ago from, um, you know, from an illness, from a tumor. Uh, but with Paul, I was working on how it is that sympathetic neurons undergo a transmitter switch pheno phenotype upon uh, innovating specific target organs. Um, and with David, when I rotated through David's lab, a grad student at the time, Derek Stemple, had just identified stem cells with the neural crest. And so when Derek sort of graduated, um, so his work showed that you could identify with antibody labeling specific cells sort of migrating from the spinal cord that were multipotential and gave rise to neurons and Schwann cells in tissue culture, just like the neural crest does in vivo. And these are, these are really fascinating cells, actually. So my understanding is that so they, they're kind of at the tip of the neural tube, and they start out there. But like you said, they, had this, they have this kind of amazing migratory behavior, and they can basically go to many different places in the body and become different types of cells. Is that right? That's right. So neural crest cells are sort of a vertebrate specialization. They differentiate into many different cell types. They come from the dorsal sort of tip of the spinal cord. Mm -hmm. And then they migrate bilaterally, and they give rise to all our sensory neurons, all our sympathetic parasympathetic neurons in the periphery. They give rise to all the glial cells in the periphery. They also give rise to smooth muscle cells in the aortic arch. They form much of the cartilage and the bone in many tissues. And they also form melanocytes. Go ahead. And how did you differentiate this from, from the thought, like the kind of the hypothesis that you were saying earlier, that you know maybe that these growth factors are just allowing this particular type the glia come later. I see. Huh. So there's some intrinsic bias that plays out in vivo as well. I see, I see. Sort of switching gears now to your time in Richard Axel's lab at Columbia, you shifted over to a very different line of research related m more towards behavior. So just before we get into the research aspect, could you sort of shed light a little bit on David and Richard and their similarities or differences in terms of mentorship or how they run their labs and how they approach scientific questions? So if you start with that, everybody in David's lab had, was working toward a common goal at the time when I was there. And that was to sort of try and figure out how it is that these peripheral neural lineages differentiate. Right. So there are people working on sensory neuron differentiation. There were people working on further downstream aspects of sympathetic neuron differentiation. People were working on sort of internal transcription uh, factor codes that drive um, these stem cells into different fates and receive, you know, once the cells have seen growth factor signals, what are the transcription factors that are activated that then control sympathetic neuronal differentiation, for example. So everybody had their own project, but people were working toward a common sort of goal. Uh, Richard's lab uh, was incredibly diverse. Everybody was off doing their own thing sometimes sort of seemingly completely unrelated fields of inquiry. So I'll give you an example. So I was working on, I was sort of developing a system to start, start asking what circuits control sort of in, innate sexually dimorphic social behaviors. 
there were people there working on identifying or trying to figure out how it is that olfactory neurons uh, make olfactory receptor decisions. You know, how do olfactory sensory neurons choose to express one or the other receptor? There are people sort of working on olfactory neurons, but on a completely unrelated set of questions. How is it that olfactory neurons know where to project to in the brain? Then there were other groups, there were other people in the lab working on identifying olfactory receptors in other species, Drosophila. There were people there working on identifying receptors for taste. Uh, and there was even a person for a while when I was there working on transplicing. Right? It's a completely different uh, stuff. So in that sense, it didn't seem that there was sort of a focus in the lab, but it was still a wonderful environment because you could sit in a lab meeting and just hear spectacular stories of exciting science that you didn't necessarily want to be doing because you were not interested in that, but it was just wonderful to sort of participate in and listen and learn about different ideas and different technologies that people were using in the lab. David also made the shift from cell biology, which he did for his PhD, to behavior, which is what he did with Richard, and you kind of made the similar transition. Was there a particular reason that prompted you to do this, or? Right, so, so David's switch was more from biochemistry, a protein sort of folding with Gunter Blobel, to uh, cell biology of differentiation with Richard, uh, which is what he took as his sort of um, uh, project at Caltech. And so when I was in the lab, his lab, when I was in David's lab, his lab was all about Norquest differentiation. And as a student, you know, it seemed uh, important to try and do something different from what I had already sort of learned to think about. Um, and we had a wonderful sort of um, cadre of students at Caltech at the time that had that we had developed deep bonds with, and we sort of, you know, had ideas about what might be interesting about neuroscience. And we had these sort of informal journal clubs going, um, and it seemed to me that the next reasonable step for me that seemed the most exciting was to sort of say, okay, I sort of now have a feeling for how to think about development of neurons in glia. Now I'd like to learn how it is that they function to generate behavior. And that was my reasoning for sort of switching um, my fields. Uh, so when I left the lab, in David's lab, as a student, 100% of his lab was still committed to neural crest differentiation. Uh, and in a, in, a, in a tangent on sort of an arterial and venous differentiation. Um, but it's all, all sort of development-based. And then with Richard's lab, in Richard's lab, I sort of came up on the idea of um, asking, how is it? Uh, what circuits control social behaviors. And the reason to work on social behaviors was, you know, I wanted to use the power of genetics to highlight or identify circuits that control behavior. And to that, one has to turn to instinctual or genetically wired behaviors that can be displayed without prior training. Um, and it seemed that doing forward genetics was not the way to go um, in mice, um, but rather to use the sort of molecular genetic tools, but to still take advantage of the experiment that evolution's done of generating two variants within a species, males and females. Um, so if one could identify genetic or neural differences in the brains of males and females, then one would have an entry point 
into understanding circuits that might control male typical or female typical behaviors. Related to your sexual dimorphism work, you developed the transgenic Laxi mouse to visualize the androgen receptor containing neurons. So until this point, why was visualizing these neurons difficult? And were there some unexpected regions that showed dimorphism? So these hormone receptors are expressed at pretty low levels. They're transcribed at low levels. And the antibodies are sort of hit or miss. So now we have at least two good antibodies, one for androgen receptor and one for estrogen receptor alpha, or ESR1 as it's called. Um, but there are still not very many good antibodies for other hormone receptors, such as the estrogen receptor beta, for example. Um, and the fact that they're expressed at very low levels also means that even if you have a good antibody, you are likely to miss cells that express these hormone receptors at lower levels. Um, so I said, you know, I'm not going to be biased in how I identify or label these neurons. I'm going to use genetic reported tools to label these neurons, because those, once they're on, they're on, right? And if you have nuclear beta-galactosidase, which is what I sort of decided to use, then that's going to sit in the nucleus, and because it's an enzyme, it's going to be, it's going to report very sensitively uh, which cells are expressing the antigen receptor, and that worked. And um, we identified at least two brain regions um, that people had not previously observed sex differences in androgen receptor expression in mice. One of which is a really famous sex difference in the brain um, in the preoptic hypothalamus. Um, so it's famous in the sense that it's one of the earliest identified sexually dimorphic brain regions in mammals, and rats have it, have a big sex difference in this region, and humans seem to have an analogous region simply by nissle staining, right? You can just do a nissle generic neuronal stain and see that this region seems larger in male rats, for example, compared to female rats. But the same nissle stain did not reveal any overt sex difference in volume or cell number in this region of the mouse. As soon as we labeled with a beta-gal reporter, that difference just popped out at us at like 2x on a stereodissecting microscope. You could just see this was a male brain, that was a female brain. Um, the other difference that popped out, uh, very strikingly, is small clusters of neurons that are essentially present only in the male basal forebrain, so toward the sort of ventral cortical surface, um, that are scattered across a huge rostrocardial extent in the male basal forebrain, um, and are barely present in the female brain that express the antigen receptor. So the basal forebrain region is very complicated. Uh, and I think it, the definition of what that constitutes is going to vary from lab to lab or person to person, right? Or depending on the day you ask me, perhaps. Uh, uh, but uh, it's sort of it's at the intersection of uh, the basal ganglia and the olfactory tubercle. So the ventral pallidum is there, is right there. The nucleus accumbens is right there, um, right? So these clusters that we identified were sort of interspersed in the sort of ventral palatal region. They're not exactly on the cortical surface, but just deeper to that. And so if you think about what these regions might do, I mean, what the basal ganglia do, right? People are working on that full time, and it seems it might be important for many different things, including approach behaviors, reward, and aversive behaviors. 
um, as well as sort of movement, of course. And the olfactory tubercle is going to be involved in processing all sorts of uh, olfactory cues, learned or otherwise, um, for navigating the environment. So just that location of, as to where these neurons are doesn't really tell us what they might be doing. Uh, and in fact, we still don't know what these neurons do, but we are uh, probably, we have um, sort of an informal collaboration with somebody at Stanford, Jim Ding, who's faculty there. And we have plans to examine what these neurons might be doing and uh, what the physiology might be in slices and what happens when we sort of optogenetically activate them or otherwise, um, you know, manipulate them functionally. Um, maybe back up a little. I've seen a lot of work where people have probed sex differences using uh, actually sensory neurons. So um, in the vulvar nasal organ, there are, you know, there've been lots of papers where they've knocked out receptors for uh, pheromones and shown, you know, uh, big effects on behavior. But then you started to move. You had a paper about that, but you also started to move more centrally um, and using your uh, AR Lagzi mouse um, to to uh, examine how hormones max hormones masculinize the brain and also uh, behavior. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, and uh, maybe tell us, since we didn't really touch on this, what those aromatase receptor neurons do, um, how they actually respond to hormones like estrogen. So what I did in Richard's lab was essentially formulate uh, an unbiased molecular genetic approach to label neurons in, that might be involved in sexual amorphic behaviors. And what we saw with CFOS labeling in Richard's lab is that these neurons were activated with mating behavior, at least in the bed nucleus and the preoptic hypothalamus. So I said, this is great. We now have a way of uh, sort of interrogating these neurons. And we made a similar report of mouse now asking what neurons express aromatase. Now, aromatase is a cytochrome P450 enzyme that converts testosterone or related androgens into estrogen. And counterintuitively, aromatase is required to convert circulating testosterone in males into estrogen in the male brain. Uh, and this is sort of counterintuitive because knockouts male mice null for aromatase essentially do not exhibit any male-typical behaviors, such as mating or aggression. Right? And this is surprising because this data suggests that estrogen plays an important role in controlling male behaviors. And this has been, of course, sort of um, confirmed by complementary studies, right? So you can do sort of hormonal manipulation studies and show that the ligand estrogen can be sufficient for many male-typical displays of behavior. And the receptors for estrogen ear alpha and ear beta are required for male-typical behaviors. So we wanted to ex ask, where is aromatase expressed in the brain? Because that's an important question. And aromatase is expressed at even lower levels in the mammalian brain than these hormone receptors. So doing in situ is a tough go. And there are no good antibodies to aromatase uh, in our, for our models. Um, so we developed the reporter. And what we saw was something very shocking we saw that aromatase was only expressed uh, in about four brain regions and subsets of neurons in these brain regions, such that the number of aromatase-expressing neurons constitute no more than, say, 0.1% or 0.05% of all the neurons in the brain. We identified maybe 10 to 15,000 neurons in the entire mouse brain, which has, you know, about 70 million neurons that express aromatase. And that's exciting because it says that we know that aromatase is required for all male social displays. So now 
we have a handle, right, with 10,000, 15,000 neurons on examining how it is that these neurons control the diversity of male behaviors. I mean, it's like it's like you now have this, suddenly this very, very tractable circuit in, exactly. in a system that usually people go to flies because they're hoping for fewer neurons. Right? Exactly. Yeah. So, right, so that's about the same you know, order of magnitude roughly between flies and, um, and, and mammals in the sense that aromatases we think express about 10,000 neurons and fruitless, for example, in the male fly brain, the male specific isoforms express in a few thousand neurons. So that analogy that you just made is sort of right on. And so we asked the question, this is a student in the lab now, Melody Wu at the time, she, we asked the question, how is it that aromatase uh, becomes sexually dimorphic in its expression pattern in, in the adult animal. And what she showed is that at birth, uh, there is no sex difference in the number of aromatase expressing neurons between males and females. But there's a critical window in the first week or so of life whereby males have a male-specific surge of testosterone that is aromatized into estrogen in the brain. And this estrogen acts via a positive feedback manner to allow survival of aromatase-expressing neurons in the brain. So many aromatase neurons, aromatase-expressing neurons in the female, in the female brain, apoptose. And uh, speaking of which, um, you've actually kind of expanded beyond, you know, um, so you definitely use your AR, like mouse as a tool, but also expanded beyond this to kind of get into using a molecular and genetic approach to identify sex dimorphism in the central nervous system. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about this? You've done some differential screens um, to, to look at sex differences. Uh, and the reason to go after that is we know the hormones are required for the behavior. We know the hormone receptors are required for the behavior. Mm -hmm. We know that the hormone receptors almost certainly impart function as transcription factors. Mm -hmm. So the question is what are the target genes downstream of these hormone receptors that regulate the behavior? Mm -hmm. uh, and conceptually also it's a very interesting question. Mm -hmm. If you knock out ear alpha or mm -hmm. androgen receptor, you lose the entire the, the entire repertoire of male behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. Males will no, no longer mate, fight, sing, mock the territory. Females will no, no longer be reproductively active. They will not be receptive to males, mm -hmm. right? So that's a so how is it that these hormone receptors control this vast array of behaviors? Mm -hmm. And we intuited that perhaps genes downstream of these hormone receptors might control specific aspects of one or the other behavior, but not the entire repertoire of male, maleness or femaleness. Okay. And we came upon that thinking based on sort of very classical work um, of Hal Weintraub, who worked on muscle differentiation, mm -hmm. and Lily and Yunang Jan, who worked at UCSF here, who worked on neural differentiation. And what they had sort of shown was a general logic whereby early master regulators set up a differentiation scheme for specific cell types whereby these master regulators set up a hierarchy of gene expression patterns such that the further downstream you go from these master regulators you identify genes that control one or the other aspect of neuronal or muscle or muscle differentiation but not other elements of those cell types so we sort of intuited or we at least we hypothesized that perhaps there were genes downstream of these hormone receptors which are the master regulators for sexual amorphic behaviors that if you could identify these genes, we might be able to control, we might be able to understand the molecular mechanisms whereby different components of these behaviors are controlled by different genes. 
And so that was the screen we set out to sort of perform. And that was the work of a student in the lab and a postdoctor at the time. So we did identify genes downstream of these hormones. Um, and uh, they're very diamorphic. Uh, we identified 16 genes at the time. I think that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's going to be many more. Uh, the adult expression patterns invariant between individuals of the species. Uh, and the dimorphisms themselves are very complex in terms of the patterning. We don't understand how they're patterned yet. But we showed that individual genes, just as we had hypothesized, when we mutate, control one or the other components of, you know, sexual dimorphic social behaviors, but not everything. Uh, I guess I, one thing I'm kind of wondering is that, you know, with regard to a lot of other kind of signaling pathways that are in the brain and in other systems, there's a lot of redundancy. Do you think it's different for you in the sense that you're studying something that's a very conserved, you refer to the fact that these are very conserved, very robust behaviors, a lot of these mating and sexual behaviors. Do you think that that helps, um, helps you a bit in this, in this kind of molecular screen? Right. So you're alluding to the fact that these behaviors are evolutionarily highly selected for. You need them absolutely to reproduce and propagate your gene pool. Um, so yes, I don't know what to make of the redundancy argument. We certainly can't exclude the possibility that we are missing wider phenotypes because other gene networks are kicking in and compensating for loss of the gene function in our mutants. Um, but I also think that in many cases, evolution is a tough taskmaster. It doesn't care. If you don't have the gene, you're mutant, and you are not adaptive for that environment you find yourself in, that's too bad. Right? So, for example, we just have one gene for male sex de determination, SRY. This one gene on one chromosome. If you don't have it, you're going to be feminized. Right? There's no redundancy built into sex determination, for example. So there's no redundancy. Redundancy, it seems, built into the ultimate sort of pathway that you need to reproduce. So if, right? so if there is redundancy, it might be serving other roles in other pathways. And I can't, we can't exclude that, obviously. Right, right, right. But that would be interesting that, you know, you know, uh, you know re reproduction and all of the behaviors that come with it is something that's very distinct in the sense that, you know, you don't want it to work if the rest of you isn't working. And then if I can just kind of cut um, to something else that I heard that you're working on, maybe you want to tell us about it, maybe not, is that you recently, um, so as you said, you have a lot of background in developing genetic tools, um, primarily for mouse, but uh, recently I heard that you're working um, with prairie voles. Can you tell us a little bit about um, that and what your goal is with that? Right. So prairie voles are extremely interesting, right? Mm -hmm. Humans form social attachments at many levels, almost effortlessly, as it were. You know, we have strong attachments with our family members, with our spouses, our significant others, with children, with lab mates, with our faculty, for example, right? With my students, for example, or postdocs. How you form these attachments is entirely mysterious. Uh, but it seems to be extremely important for our personal and professional success or survival. Um, and the, when these attachments break down because you can't either maintain them or form them, it's pretty devastating. Um, things that come to mind are things like autism or schizophrenia, um, where, you know, kids with autism, for example, have difficulties sort of developing close relationships often uh, with their caregivers. Um, so how do you sort of study this important social behavior. Uh, most mammals we know don't form such social attachments. Uh, prairie voles do. 
uh, and they form social attachments, um, sort of monogamous type relationships between mating partners, between sexual partners. So that upon cohabitation and mating, a male and female will form a, a pair bond um, such that they will now reject other potential sexual partners. Uh, they prefer to sort of hang out with each other physically in the cage. Um, so they, they sort of huddle in the cage corner usually. Um, they're biparental, just like humans are. They're biparental, just like humans are. Uh, they have incest avoidance. Um, if you artificially break the bond in the laboratory, you clearly see separation anxiety type behaviors in both partners. Uh, and this bond is very strong, right? So the memory of the social attachment perdures for at least two weeks in the laboratory. So this seems like a great model to go after if you want to understand the neurobiology of forming, you know, social attachments with other animals. The other intriguing aspect of the social attachment in bulls is that um, genetic studies in humans and pharmacological studies in humans have implicated the neuropeptides vasopressin oxytocin and trust and empathy and forming relationships. And amazingly enough, um, some pioneering work from Lowell Getz, Sue Carter, Tom Insel, and then his sort of uh, trainees has shown that the same neuropeptides seem to be also critical for forming social attachments in bulls. So that's the reason to sort of go after, you know, understanding what are the circuits in prairie bulls that might be mediating the social attachment, that this behavior that essentially locks in upon uh, subsequent to sexual behavior. And what we are doing with this is, um, you know, we realize, we appreciate the power of molecular genetics and the unbiased sort of advantages it gives you. Um, so we are developing genetic tools in prairie voles um, to go after the circuits that control these um, behaviors. And we've developed, we've developed um, iPSCs. Now, this is the work of a clinical fellow in the lab, Dave Manoli, who is a MD-PhD student with Bruce Baker at Stanford, um, uh, another clinical fellow, Shan Huang, from Taiwan, and two spectacular um, research assistants. Um, and they've developed uh, embryonic stem cells, bona fide ES cells, bona fide iPSCs from prairie voles, that show homologous recombination, meaning that we can knock in or knock out genes at will in tissue culture in these pluripotent stem cell lines. And we're now injecting these into blastocysts to get chimeras, uh, sort of like the mouse. And we are also working with CRISPRs to ge uh, generate CRISPR-mediated uh, uh, mutation events in prairie balls. So with that, can you talk a little bit about your upcoming talk and what you might want to share a little glimpse for us? I was hoping, I think, uh, to talk about some of the more recent uh, data we have on the control of uh, mating and aggression in mice. Uh, we have some pretty cool data showing um, experiential modulation of these behaviors in very surprising and perhaps profoundly interesting ways that we can relate to as humans. Uh, you know, because you think these animals sort of genetically and hormonally wired to behave the way they do, but we are finding uh, that actually the biology is much more complex than that. Um, so that's one thing I'm sort of thinking about talking about. 
And, and the other sort of thing to talk about is this other project we have in the lab, whereby we're looking at how it is that animals choose mates at a very uh, primal level. Um, how is it that animals in the wild, even though that the individual that they're looking at or sniffing uh, is even of the same species or not? Right? So we had a paper recently, a year and a half ago, showing that we had uncovered a chemosensory pathway whereby flies, male flies, know um, that the other species is a that the other animals are conspecific or from a different species. So I might talk about work on that and how we are sort of transitioning that work uh, into mice. Um, with that, we'd like to close with our rapid fire uh, question part of the interview, which um, we're just going to ask a couple of brief questions and you're, you're free to just give us a short answer from the top of your head. Um, Louise, you want to start? Okay, so sex and sex differences are clearly a pretty fun topic for the popular press. Have you ever encountered a funny representation in the press of your own research? Yeah, actually, you know, where we show that the androgen receptor is not required for masculinizing the brain and behavior turned out to be sort of um, hilarious, at least for the popular press. So The Economist ran an article on how it is that, you know, uh, testosterone-fueled sort of Wall Street types weren't really testosterone-fueled, but were estrogen-fueled. And there was a similar article, I think, in The Telegraph or some of the newspaper, some English newspaper, that said, you know, James Bond macho-ness comes not from testosterone, but from estrogen. Uh, so that was sort of pretty fun. Uh, yeah, so... Yeah, I mean, this is, we get a lot of heads with this. <laughs> a lot of the public, yeah, they definitely have these um, these hormones in certain buckets. Compare and contrast. So you've lived both uh, here in San Francisco and also in New York. Um, do you want to tell us the best and worst of each city? San Francisco, um, what's best? The food's spectacular. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. uh, what's the worst? Uh, the fog. The say again? The, the, the fog. fog. The fog. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Gets co surprisingly cold. Surprisingly cold. Um, New York, the best. Um, bagels mm. and museums. Mm -hmm. um, the worst. Oh, um, hmm. I would say grime. Although the last mm -hmm. time I was there, it's so gentrified. It's not the New York I knew. I, uh, I see. Um, but, yeah, New York is big. So. Yeah, yeah. The worst, it's... If I complain of the fog and the cold in San Francisco, New York <laughs> is not the place I wanted to be this winter, and I was so happy I was not there. <laughs> it's cold. <laughs> but there's snow and everything. Yes, exactly. And, and, it's, and it's muggy when it's hot. So. Right, yeah. All right, last rapid-fire question. Ratio of men to women versus other in your life? <laughs> uh, no other, as far as I know. Uh, I think we are 40-60, 40% men, 60% uh, women. Including yourself? Including myself. Okay. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's actually, this is a pretty good ratio for us. There have been, yeah. times, yeah. when, there have been times when uh, it was 20-80, 20% men and 80% women. Wow. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and thank you all for listening. We hope you'll join us next week when our guest will be Jeremy Dittman, Associate Professor of Biochemistry at Cornell. NeuroTalk is a production of Neurite West. 
This episode was produced by David Lipton, Luis Giam, Andrew Gundren, Viet Nguyen, Edin Alberin, and myself, ADE. Adam Pushaw and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of NeuroTalk, as well as our radio show, Brains and Bourbon, and read articles about everything you ever wanted to know about neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. This is NeuroTalk, and I'm ADE.